Thanks, Jim. Well, this morning, we're going to wrap up this short series, this Why series that we've been doing over the past uh, four weeks. Uh, why baptism we did. Why uh, church membership we did. Why communion we did. And this morning, uh, you'll see in a moment why gospel-centered. But I think we'll, we'll return to it again someday, this why series. And in fact, I think next time we'll do it. Maybe we'll do like a... Um, a little survey, uh, write down or fill in or something saying, what do you want to hear about the Bible, a why question, maybe even to hear from the, you guys uh, a topic you'd like to hear with the Bible, how it answers that question. And that'd be fun for us to do as we'll take some suggestions, maybe a little survey of the congregation. Well, today it's gospel-centered, gospel-centered. You know, over the past 10 years or so, I would say, this phrase, this term, gospel-centered, has become kind of a, a buzzword, a buzzword. We've got gospel-centered everything, everything from gospel-centered discipleship to gospel-centered counseling to gospel-centered parenting and the gospel-centered church and gospel-centered worship. And I think there's even gospel-centered cereal. There's all kinds of <laughs> stuff that, not really, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it's a buzzword, gospel-centered. It's everywhere you turn. You get the point. You get the point. But if by it we mean this, that we would come to see the gospel of Jesus, His good news, and Jesus Christ is the center of that good news, coming to see that it as more valuable and relevant to all of our life, and have our life centered on Jesus and the gospel and applying it to everything and all situations in our life, then I'm all for it. I think it's actually what the Bible does too. We just have uh, kind of made a, a catchy phrase for it that's caught on. And in fact, that's what I'm doing today. I'm making a case that this is the way of the Christian church and the Christian life, the gospel, and to be centered and founded upon the gospel. I know as I grew up in the church, and maybe you have too, and maybe you're new even to the gospel, that I think we kind of a tendency as Christians to, um, to shrink the gospel or to live with a, a shrunken or um, truncated is the word, kind of cut off view of the gospel. I know I do that. I have to battle this every single day. Here's what we've done, and some of us, and I do this myself. I've thought of the gospel of Jesus Christ as kind of the doorway into a relationship with God. My conversion, you might call it. Or being born again. The doorway, the entryway to the Christian life or into God's kingdom. And then that's it. Kind of stopped there. Right there. And thought, well, okay, I'm a Christian now and I've got the gospel. I need to move on to something else. Or uh, I need to be just kind of really challenged really hard. Or, or uh, move on to something a little deeper than that. I get that. But it's so much more, the gospel. It's not just the door we walk through, but I would say it's, it's the road, it's the path, it's the entire way we follow and stick to for our entire life of discipleship. Not just the doorway, but our whole life. The good news of Jesus Christ. Bob Thune, a theologian, said this about the gospel. It's not just the means of our salvation, but it's also the means of our transformation, how we grow. It's not simply deliverance from sin's penalty, but release from sin's power. 
The gospel is what makes us right with God. There's a doorway. Justification. But it also, it also is what frees us to delight in God. That's that other big word. Sanctification it means growing. So the doorway, you see it there. But once we're justified, we live that life towards growing, sanctification. He's saying the gospel changes everything. Everything. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Well, do you trust that? The gospel changes everything. Everything. And how you view everything. Do you think and live like that? I want us to. Badly. And I think God does too. What does it mean to have the gospel be the center around which you build, which we build, which I build my life and our churches? What does it mean to believe, not only believe, but live out and cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we're doing today. We're going to look at three implications of the truth of the gospel. So if you've got your outline, we've got some notes in there to help you. Grab those, pull them out to fill in. Have your Bibles open and ready as we're going to answer this question. Why gospel-centered? Here's the first implication of the gospel's truth. The gospel is not... Religion or irreligion, but good news that saves. The gospel's not e- religion or irreligion, but good news that saves. Well, let's, we'll unpack that in a second. But let's be really clear up front. We've got to be all on the same page of what is the gospel. Because if, if, we're, if we haven't defined the term, we're, we're kinda, we can all be thinking, yeah, that's good. But if we haven't defined the term the gospel, we might all be thinking something different. So let's define it before we can discuss the implications. Uh, the last verse of our passage in Colossians showed us this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Here's the Gospel, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so there's part of it. Jesus has delivered us by redeeming us, by saving us, and we're transferred from one kingdom entirely to another kingdom. A dark kingdom to a kingdom of truth and light and goodness and beauty. All right. But how does it happen? How does it happen? Look at 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the how. Okay? Uh, The motivation. It's God's love. John 3.16. God so loved the world. Um, it's his love, not the lovability of the creature, but just God's love that he paid an atoning, a payment sacrifice by sending God the Son in the flesh. He switched places with us, the guilty rebels. So Jesus takes our place on the cross, pays what we deserve, pays the uh, penalty of sin, and he gives us his righteousness and goodness. That's the how, how it happened. But it must come to us through our own faith. Look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified, that's the doorway, right? The doorway in, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the gospel. Becoming a Christian there means transferring the faith of your own goodness, your own works, and transferring it to Christ's work and Christ's goodness through repentance and faith it becomes ours that's the gospel 
You could say it even in, in five words. Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose again. Really easy way to remember it. Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose again. Really easy to remember. That's the Gospel. But here's the problem. We get confused on what the Gospel is and many of us say we believe it and we've come to believe it, but we aren't always living out of that belief and we tend to drift and drift and slide back towards this kind of, you might even call it a works-based goodness or righteousness which you might call religion. That first term there, you might call religion. There's really only three ways for any person to live in the world. Three ways. Did you know that? Three ways, really, that every single human on the planet now, not just in Canby or Bethany Church, on the planet can live. Three ways. You see them in point one there. And the strange thing is the first two ones, religion and irreligion, aren't that different. Religion and irreligion aren't that different. What do I mean by that? And what do those terms mean? Let's talk about it. Let's, talk, let's start with irreligion. We can kind of get that. It's, uh, it's a, a, a coming from a place of, I reject God. I don't need a Savior. I'm going to live however I see fit. Kind of maybe relativism, moral relativism. I'll find my own meaning. I'll make my own way. That's kind of irreligion. That's kind of, we can kind of get that. And that's maybe the easier to understand. Irreligion. It's, it's easy to see the difference between irreligion and the gospel. Uh, an irreligion person might just reject it entirely. I'm going to find my own way. I got this. I'll figure it out. I'm just going to live my own life. It's easier to see the difference between that. Would you agree? Than the gospel. And if that's you today, I would say, trust the gospel. Repent and turn today from that path to Jesus Christ and the message we just heard about and we're going to keep hearing about today. Today. But religion, so we've got irreligion. Religion's a little more difficult to spot. And probably for everybody in this room, all of us, or those that have professed faith in Christ, it's a little more of you and, you're and my temptation. Religion. Okay? Let's talk about that. Religious people look to God as a helper or a teacher, an example maybe. But their goodness, their performance, maybe it's their church attendance, maybe uh, their, their goodness, their good record of living, that's what they really bask in, find meaning in, find uh, security in. I'm an obedient good person, therefore God will love me. That's religion. I'm an obedient, good person, therefore God will love me. But here's the similarity. It's a long quote, but I want us to see it by Tim Keller. He said, both of them, irreligion and religion, both are seeking to keep control of their own lives by looking to something besides God as their salvation. So if you're the irreligious person, you look to just whatever you want, your own views, your own life, your own choices as your control of your life. If you're the religious person, what do you look to? Your good record. My goodness. My record. My history. My past. Both, he's saying, are pretty similar because they're both trying to be their own God and control life. Religious legalism, moralism, and here's the other, secular irreligious relativism are just different strategies of self-salvation, which is not the gospel. We have to be clear on that. Christians have come to see that their sins now, as well as their best deeds, have equally been ways of avoiding Jesus as Savior. 
Christianity is not fundamentally an invitation to get more religious. A Christian says, though I've often failed to obey the moral law, the deeper problem was why I was trying to obey it. Even my efforts to obey it have just been a way of seeking to be my own Savior. Similar things. Similar ways to kind of maintain control of your own life and avoid Jesus. I can avoid Jesus by being really good, is what we're saying, on the religious side. Well, the religious person may repent of their sins. A Christian person repents of their sins and their self-righteousness. A lot of even our own motivations even for obedience. Let's make this as, let's make this as clear as possible. Here's the difference. Let's make it as clear as possible. Religion says this, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. That's religion. This is why we struggle with those who've trusted Christ. We struggle with this much more than irreligion. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The gospel says this, I'm accepted by God in Christ, therefore I obey. Do you see the difference there? It's a big difference. That's how religion works. That's how the gospel works. Well, you might see that and you might say, well, that makes that makes sense, but I, I, I'm a Christian. I, I know that it's faith alone. I'm saved by God's grace and, and trusting Jesus. I don't, I, don't live, I don't live that way. Well, here's a question I found this week as I was reading that kind of tests this. To ask yourself. Okay, everybody think about this. Ask yourself. As God thinks of you right now, what's the look on His face? As God thinks of you right now, what's the look on his face? Is he disappointed? Is he angry? Is he yelling at you? Why can't you just pull yourself up? Why can't you just get it together? Why can't you just do more? If your thought was anything other, or if it has been throughout your weeks and this coming week, if your thought was anything other than God's delight in you and joy in you as his son or daughter, you have fallen into that works mindset. You might be thinking this too. Yeah, God loves me, but I don't think he likes me. <laughs> it might be another way to put it. I, know, I get God loves me, but I don't think he likes me. That's another phrase to kind of help us think through that. It doesn't mean our sin doesn't grieve God, but he doesn't love you less. Or find less joy in you. Look what Galatians says. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. A son and daughter. And if you're a son and daughter, then you're an heir through God. That's how He sees you every day, all day, no matter what's going on in your life. That's how He sees you if you've come to trust Jesus Christ. But that's not always how we see Him looking at us, is it? But we think, if I just get a little better, God will love me a little more. If I just try a little harder, God will bless me with what, fill in the blank, right? We've all got 10 or 20 of them we could rattle off or list. He loves because of Christ. And what Christ did for you, He can't love you less. That is the Gospel. That's the freedom of the Gospel. And if we live that way with that mindset, that works kind of religious mindset, it's actually a miserable way to live too. It takes the joy out of life. It takes the joy out of, uh, of, of living for Christ and then your obedience becomes duty rather than just d delighting in Jesus and, and the Gospel. 
It takes the joy out of it. And what happens And if you're living that way and life doesn't go your way and you're kind of living like the religious, like, you know, I'm good, therefore God will uh, bless me. Or uh, uh, if life tends to fall apart or things go bad in your life, then here's what we do. If we've ha- been having a good record lately, and we've been living really well, we get angry at God. That's what we do. But if we realize that we've actually been f- kind of failing, like, yeah, I've read my Bible, I've, I've skipped church, what do we do? We turn it inwards and we get angry at ourselves. We beat ourselves up. That's what we do. So you can kind of get a little litmus test there. Something tends to kind of fall apart in life. If you've been feeling like you've been doing really well, you get angry at God. If you feel like you've, I've been blowing it lately, you turn it inward and beat yourself up. We do that. I do that. Too many of us have thought that the gospel then is more of a good advice rather than good news. Take a look. Here's another simple way to put it. Religion says the gospel is good advice. The gospel is, the word actually means, good news. Religion says it's good advice. The gospel says good news. This preacher, one of, the, one of the best preachers of the 20th century, his name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this about the gospel. Here's what he said. The gospel's not good advice. Good advice is counsel about something to do. Good advice. Somebody gives you good advice. And it hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. That's good advice. Good advice about counsel about something to do. It hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. He said, news is a report. Good news is, is a report. It's about something that's already happened. And you can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. That's what he said. Here's the example he used. Let's try to make it really kind of come to life for us. Here's the example he used between good advice and good news. Imagine you were a group of people. You were living in um, a village somewhere, a medieval village. It had a king and a castle and walls and a fortress. And we were a group of people living amongst this town, this city. And we realized that there was an invading army that was coming. And our king, our king now, he valiantly, he bravely stood up and he says, he stood before us and he said, you know what? I will go and defeat this enemy. The army's coming. I'll go defeat this enemy for you. And he goes off to battle. And we're all left there kind of, you know, hunkering down and, and, and wondering what's going to happen and not quite sure. If he defeats the enemy, he will send back, they were called heralds, and they would come back with trumpets and they'd come back and they would, they would proclaim the good news. The good news. These joyful, you could call them good newsers. They'd come back from the front lines of the battle to see us behind the castle walls. And they'd come, they'd say, the enemy's been defeated. The enemy has been defeated. Live in peace. Live in joy and obedience for your king has won. That's a good newser. They'd come back and they'd proclaim it. And what would we do? We'd cheer, we'd hug, we'd laugh, wouldn't we? We'd celebrate. We'd li- we would love this king and live for him. Now let's say the battle didn't go so well. He'd send back advisors to give good advice. Get ready. It's not going well. They're coming. They've broke through the front lines. Get the archers here. Get the swordsmen there. Do your best to survive. Whatever you've got to do, the enemy is coming. Fight for your life. They'd come back. Every other religion of the world sends good advisors. 
every other religion of the world, their teachers give good advice. Fight for your life. Here's what you do. Here's 10 steps. Here's how you live. It'll get your life in gear. You'll be saved. Live this way. Only Christianity sends good newsers. Only Christianity. Something has been accomplished, accomplished in history. The battle has been won. That's the difference. The battle's been won. Oh, death, 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 where's your sting? Where's your victory? For sin is the sting and res- results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, there's the victory. He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel is not religion. The Gospel is not irreligion. It's something entirely different. It's good news that saves. That's what it is. You see how it's different than everything else? What type of news? That was implication number one. Here's number two. Here's number two. The Gospel is a powerful, it's a living message which grows us. The Gospel is a powerful, living message which grows us. After you get that one filled in, let's look at the passage from Colossians 1 that Jim read for us this morning. We'll take a look. Hopefully you still got your Bible open there. Chapter 1. Let's look at verses 3-6 through six together to see this powerful, life-giving, growing message. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love, the love that you have for all the saints, they were loving people, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul's saying, okay, Colossians, I've heard how loving you are. You're a loving people. And I'm so thankful for you. So thankful. I've heard you have faith in Jesus and and it's showing because look how loving you are. Why is that? What does that passage tell us? Why? Why? Because the Gospel is not just the thing that converts us, changes us. It's the thing that continues to grow us. It's a powerful, living message which grows us. Not just saves us, it grows us too. What Paul say in Romans? He said this, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Gospel itself is the power. It doesn't bring us a power. What does it say there? The Gospel, it is the power. The Gospel, what Jesus has done, it is the power. That's what it means to be a Gospel-centered person. Realizing that it's not just the message that saves us, but it's also the message that grows us. It is, by the working of the Holy Spirit, the power. The Gospel is not just the first page of some instruction manual. and It's the entirety of the thing, really. 
Another phrase that Keller likes to say is it's, the Gospel's not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to what? Z. It's the A to Z. Let's look closer at that passage. Look at verse 6 there. Take a look at it. And, um, you know, so he says, okay, Colossians, you're, you're loving people. Why? Pay close attention to the Gospel language here. The Gospel, there it is, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does so among you. Since the day you heard it and understood it, and there it is again, the, the Gospel, the grace of God in truth. This powerful message, he says, of what has been done, the good news, what's been accomplished, the victory, has come to you. You know, Paul said of the Corinthians, he said even to them, I gave you birth through the Gospel. So it's come to the Colossians as it did to the Corinthians. And that's clearly happened here. They've been born again, you might call it. A new spiritual life. They've entered the doorway. Justification, another term for it. This has happened for them now. But it doesn't stop there, does it? The Gospel doesn't stop there. What does he say? It's, it's, it's bearing fruit. It's increasing. The Gospel is. In their life, that's what the verse is saying. It's like a living thing in their heart. Like a, like a, a planted seed. The Bible uses, likes to use that metaphor. A planted seed that continues to grow internally and produce fruit and more life and more love and more joy. The Gospel does. It's also the means of bearing new fruit. It's what, it's what the verse says. The Gospel. They understood the grace of God and truth. That's the Gospel of Jesus. So the deeper we go into it, the deeper we go into that truth, the deeper we look at it, the deeper we use it on our own heart and lives, the more fruit it produces. Like Paul says, as we fall more in worship and love with our Savior, the center of the Gospel. It continues doing this. Do you see Paul says, since the day you heard it, so from the beginning, so on the one hand, it's a body of truth, the Gospel. Remember 2 Timothy? Um, the good deposit, we called it. Remember that? The good deposit, the baton Paul was handing off to Timothy. It's a body of truth. Something's happened. But it's also a message that Jesus Christ Himself, by His Spirit, continues to grow in us like a crop, like a good harvest, like a great, a great season at the farm that spreads its roots out in our heart, spreads its branches out as we live. I mean, that's a metaphor we can get as Oregonians. The, the Gospel is like a tree. It spreads its roots. It spreads its branches. My daughter came home this week and said, Oregon has the largest amount of standing timber, Dad. Okay, well, there you go. Thank you. Uh, that's the Gospel. It's a big tree, and we got lots of trees in Oregon, don't we? It's like a tree that grows. It spreads out. Here's what Dane Ortland said. We move forward, grow now, in discipleship, not mainly through pep talks or stern warnings. We move forward when we hear afresh the strangeness of grace. Relaxing our hearts and loosening our clenched hold. How many things you got like this? I got a lot. Our clenched hold on a litany of lesser things. Financial security, the perfect spouse, career advancement, 
sexual pleasure, human approval, and so on, and so on, and so on. Do you see what this is saying? The gospel of being saved by grace alone. That security we have in the righteous work and life of Christ alone is the thing that becomes the thing that allows us to have a proper view of all those other good things in our life. It is the thing. The one thing. It's not just a pep talk. It's not just stern warnings. I could stand up here week after week and do that. And it would just be behavior modification and I'd be manipulating you. I mean, that's, if, I, if we're honest, I'd just be behavior modification and I'd be manipulating you with stern talks and I'd, or stern warnings and pep talks. And I do get a little peppy when I talk about the gospel. Hopefully you see that. But um, really, the gospel is the thing. It's the thing. You've seen this thing out in the gathering place, haven't you? I wanted to bring it in here for us, but Friday when I went to get in, I opened the door on it. You thought I would have broken into Fort Knox. So <laughs> the alarm went off, and I was here by myself. I just went, oh, I, I ran back to my office. <laughs> but I wanted to bring it in here, but there's a picture of it. The gospel is like this thing in some ways. It even says on their heart start, it's called. Pray to God we never have to use it here. But the gospel is like a defibrillator in some ways. It's what jump starts our heart. You know, you've seen uh, the medical shows or uh, maybe you've been around something like that. It's what jump starts our heart. It's what gives us spiritual life as the Holy Spirit uses it and causes us to be born again. But it's not just the thing that starts our heart. It keeps poking. It keeps prodding. It keeps coming towards us and shocking our hearts as it becomes the main thing in your life. That's what it does. And our security, our identity, our worth, and our values come from that truth. When they do, that quote said, we're able to relax a little bit. We've got so many things we're clutching and holding on to that we can relax. And good things. They're all good things on that list, pretty much, that we read. But we can begin to kind of lose our vice grip on those. It takes good things in our life is what it does. Good things that begin to control us. You know what those are called? Idols. When they control us. And it puts them in their appropriate place. And you know what the irony is? You actually end up enjoying them more. You end up enjoying a spouse, a family, a job, your kids, uh, sexual pleasure even. You begin to enjoy it more when it's not your ultimate thing. It's a funny thing. We make it our ultimate thing because we think, I want to get all my joy out of this thing. But when Christ becomes your ultimate thing, all of a sudden, you're able to actually enjoy your family because you're not always worried about what's going to happen to them and obsessing. Or your job, you begin to enjoy because you know what? Even if I make a mistake at work and even if I was to lose it, I've got my security. I know where my real worth is. That's what the gospel does. So let's take a look at real quick, real practical examples. Uh, Turn your outline over. Turn over to the life group questions on the back. I don't know if you ever, some of you probably noticed those. We have those there who are in life groups. Some of you maybe didn't. Look at question number five on the back side of your life group questions real quick. Let's get real practical now. How does the gospel work in some real life sins that you might be struggling with or situations? Well, here, let's take pride. Anybody ever struggle with pride? I'm the only one in here. Wow, we got one other. Okay, good. Well, this is for you and me. So um, that's all of us. We know that. Pride. 
How does the gospel work on pride? So you're feeling proud. You're feeling maybe self-righteous. What do we do? And this doesn't come naturally. This is why we're kind of working through it together, actually, in real time. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's the gospel. There's Christ's humility. We go to it. We think it. We remind ourselves of it. We pray it. We preach it to ourselves and our pride. And we say, oh, if Christ my Savior was willing to humble himself to the cross, can I let go of this? Can I let go of this situation? You know? Can I find humility if my Savior, the one who had the right to say, all is mine, bow now, if he was humble to die on the cross? How about selfishness? Selfishness, you know? You want to be a generous person. You want to give of your time and your, and your money and your emotions and your, your stuff. But you just find yourself, oh, holding on. It's kind of stingy. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel again, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There it is again, the gospel. Jesus Christ, the richest, the one who had everything, voluntarily stepped out of his glory for a time as he humbled himself and became a poor servant on this earth. Why am I holding on to so much if Jesus Christ in the gospel did this for me? We see it. It warms our heart. It changes our heart. All right, how about unforgiving? We all have this one. We're holding on to a grudge, a spouse, a friend, a child. You just can't let it go. How does the gospel do it? Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Here it is again. As God in Christ forgave you. You've got to go back to it. And you've got to think about it again. Wow. Look at my record. Look at the thoughts of my heart. Where I've come from. What I've done. What I did today. And yet, God in Christ forgave me. How can I hold on to this petty little thing? This little thing. I I, I need to make the first move. Because God made the first move towards me. I need to make the first move. That's the gospel for holding on to grudges. How about racism? This is an odd one to throw in there. How about that? We have a lot of talk in the church today, rightfully so, about reconciliation. Um, things that have happened in the church, even. Paul, we won't go in real long detail, with the story of Galatians, um, Paul writes to Peter, or, or, or writes about his uh, confronting Peter, because Peter was willing, while there weren't certain Jews there, to eat with the Gentiles. But then all of a sudden, his Jewish brothers came along, and he thought, you know what? I better not sit down next to those guys, because those guys might think, what is he doing? So he, 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 he shunned them. He disowned them. And rather than Peter or Paul coming in going, a stern warning, how dare you? You know we're not supposed to be like that. You're not supposed to be like that. You, you should love them. I can't believe it. Why would you do that, Peter? What does he say in Galatians? When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He used the gospel. Peter, You've been saved by grace alone. How does your pedigree make you any better than that Gentile? We're all saved by grace alone. That's how it works. And once you really begin to see th- this in the Bible, it's kind of like something you can't unsee. Like if I told you right now, don't think of a pink elephant. Don't do it. We're all thinking of the pink elephant. 
It's really a continual, what's happening here is a continual rediscovery and a reusing the gospel over and over and over again against our sins. It's a heart start with that thing said. It's a heart start. But it doesn't come naturally. It does not come naturally to us. It does not. You don't just naturally, when you're in the middle of an argument with your spouse, go, oh, I should forgive you as Christ forgave me. No, you're kind of like, you know. (laughs) But it doesn't come naturally. That's why we got to practice it. That's why we got to talk about it. That's why I have to preach it. That's why our life groups have to talk about it. That's why you have to have coffee with a buddy and say, how are you doing? You know, what's going on with your life and the gospel and Christ? And do you remember this game? Look at this guy. Called, it was a whack-a-mole, I think it was called. He's, he's enjoying that a little too much, I think. Well, Martin Luther said that the gospel is so important and yet we're so prone to, to forget it that we have to continually beat it into our heads. But I don't think he had this in mind when Martin Luther said that. The gospel, in a way, it's a funny analogy. and It's not quite a perfect crossover. But the gospel is, in some ways, kind of like a it's so- soft mouth. That's a soft mouth there. It's kind of like that. Whether it's a good thing in our life, family, money, sex, that becomes an ultimate thing, an idol, the gospel kind of puts it back in it, pl- its place. As Jesus becomes again the best thing. Kind of whacks it that a little bit in our heart. Kind of, k-tush, k-tush. No, it's not the appropriate place for it. It's not an ultimate thing. It's a good thing. But Jesus has to be the ultimate thing. It kind of works like that. Or a sin that creeps in. Let's say criticism. Let's say someone criticizes you. You know, I can't stand when you fill in the blank. If you're a religious person and you think of yourself as a good person, your, your mind says, I'm a good person. And if you're criticized and you're living out of the religion side rather than the gospel of grace, when somebody criticizes you, what will happen? You'll be furious. You'll be devastated. They're a threat to your good image. They need to be destroyed. <laughs> we might not say that out loud, but that's kind of where our heart goes. Removed, proven wrong, I guess would be other nicer ways to put it. But if you're secure in the gospel, criticism will sting. We're human. It will sting. But you know your ultimate standing doesn't come to God by keeping a perfect performance. Your standing with God comes on from Christ's perfect record and His love for you. That's how, the, that's, how the, that's how it works. And so you whack the mole down. Or, you know, take the mallet, whack it down. That's how the gospel works. That's how the gospel works. Here's a couple questions you can ask yourself if you're in the middle of that. How does the gospel apply to this situation? When I'm dealing with a particular sin or temptation, I can ask, how, does, how can I apply the gospel to this thing or sin or situation? Here's another one. How am I failing to rejoice and live as if this were true about who Jesus is and what He did? So you use questions like that on yourself, on your life, on your heart. You use those questions when we find ourselves struggling. Well, here's the third implication. Let's, let's jump into it and, and wrap it up. The gospel gives us a whole new way of seeing God and repenting. Remember our three ways of viewing God? Religion, irreligion, and the gospel. An irreligion person doesn't think much of God as they see Him. If they think at all, if she thinks at all. And if they do, they minimize 
as a relig- as a uh, irreligious person, they minimize sin and think, eh, you know, God's he'll just kind of pat me on the head in the end of life and eternity, and he's happy with me, loves me just the way I am. I don't need to change for him. There's one view of God. Or maybe here's a religious view. Um, sees God as either only demanding, harsh judge, or kind of like a cosmic vending machine or a cosmic butler to get good stuff out of. I obey, therefore I will get from God. While the Christian comes to see God as both loving and forgiving and yet holy and just. And so that means you and I desperately need the cross if he's both. He's holy and loving, or he's loving and forgiving, but he's also holy and just. That's why we need the cross. You could call it cross-centered. That's fine too. Um, Gospel-centered. You call it cross-centered. And we see that because the gospel is sunk down in, into our souls, to the deepest part of who we are. The gospel person, believing person, sees this. One more time from Tim Keller. He said this. The gospel's this. We see this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's how we see God. It's entirely different, isn't it? It's an entirely different way to view God. So we repent differently too then. The religious person seeks repentance maybe because of fear, consequences, getting caught, keeping God happy, keep God in their back pocket maybe. The Christian knows there's no condemnation for those in Christ. No condemnation. So the Christian repents not because necessarily the consequence of sin, although that there's real, or necessarily to control God, but just because of the sin itself and what it does to God is it dishonors Him and grieves Him. That's why we repent. There's a difference there. Have you repented this way? Not just because you're afraid, although there is a real fear, the right fear. Not just because you want to control God, but because you just you love God. And your sin grieves him. And it dishonors his name. Here, in the community, wherever, in your personal life. And it brings a sweetness because the gospel security, which allows us to be honest. You can admit your flaws. His record's the one that matters. You can admit your sins to others and to God. There's a freedom there. And when we do that, what takes center stage again in our hearts when we do it? And we repent that way. Jesus Christ and the gospel again. It comes in again. And we experience again His grace and His mercy fresh again. The passage closed this way. Give thanks to the Father who's qualified you, He's done it, to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And the verse finishes there. In whom we have forgiveness. Uh, the forgiveness of sins. That's what happens. That's using the gospel. It's a powerful message. It's, yes, the doorway. But it is the thing. It changes. It grows. And when we do, when we grasp, when we begin to see our Bible that way as gospel Christ-centered, it'll change how you see God. It changes how we live. It changes how we repent. It changes how we love. That's why gospel-centered. Let's pray. 
Lord, thanks this morning. Thank you that we can come to the thing that is the main thing and make it a little more of the main thing as we sit here today. I pray, God, that you would work it into our hearts and souls today. Give someone, I would say, I ask you, Lord, a fresh, a fresh view of the gospel. May somebody come to trust you even today for the first time in repentance, Lord. And for those of us who have been on that road, that path, let us make sure as disciples it's the gospel path we're walking. That's the path we're on. The path of humility and grace given to us and forgiveness that transforms us from the inside out because that's how we want to be changed. From the inside out. From the heart out. From the root out to the trees, branches, to the fruit, Lord. Thank You that we have the Holy Spirit. Spirit who is present even now. That does this work in us. That transforms us. That helps us walk in obedience and prepares works for us beforehand, you even said, God. Let us be a church that is centered on the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.